Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to another episode of Twice Upon a Time and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Paul Sinha, described in Wikipedia as a British quizzer, comedian, doctor and broadcaster. Would you say that was accurate, Paul? Uh, Not entirely accurate, no. I haven't seen a patient in anger since 2007, so former doctor would be a more accurate one. But the other three, for sure. But if you're sitting next to me at dinner, I'd still ask you about my funny knee. Oh, yeah, that's how human nature is, but I wouldn't answer. The book you have chosen, Utterly Joyful Choice. Can you announce it for me? The book I've chosen, perhaps predictably, but not really uh, predictably in the nature of this show, is the Guinness Book of Records. And we have the 1982 edition. How, how old would you have been when you had this edition? Well, presuming it came out at the beginning of 1982, I'd have been between 11 and 12. Formative. For, very formative. And already very hungry for facts. And was this the first edition you'd ever had? No, I can't remember the first edition I ever had, but it would have been towards the late 70s. I didn't arrive as a fact hound from nowhere. I don't know why. I, I can't really put my finger on compared to other people of my generation and my years but facts really suited me. And my first memories of being too obsessed with facts for my own good was when I was in a school quiz, at the, a class quiz at the age of eight, I think it was. The teacher did a quiz and she asked us, which sport would you associate the world champion Mike Halewood? And I wrote motorcycling and she said, no, the answer is a water skiing. And I said, no, that's Mike Hazelwood, miss. And as you can imagine, that was me massively popular amongst the, all the teaching staff at school. That's a I was really al- good start. <laughs> I, was, I was always into this sort of thing. Uh, and what was nice is that my mum and dad and their generation of friends who came over from Calcutta in the 70s and the 60s, they understood it. They understood that I was never going to score a test century. They understood that I was the bookish one. And so it made life really easy at Christmas because I would always get at least four copies of the Guinness Book of Records from various friends of my mum and dad who all thought they'd had the same clever idea. And that was fine by me. Have you still got them all? No, they're, they're long. We moved house in 1990, and a lot of the books are now long gone because of scaling down, shall we say, which is a shame, really, because I think they'd be worth a bit now. They probably would, yeah. Uh, this is a joyful edition. I've, I've so enjoyed it. From the cover alone, because this is 1982, and it just... It yells 1982 at you, every single element of it from the font on down. What did you do when when you got this book then? Did you take it immediately somewhere to read it or did you save it as a treat? Well, I usually got it at Christmas. And so it was a good excuse to just get away from all the noise and shenanigans and watching the Poseidon adventure on repeat that tended to be a Bengali Christmas. So I tended to start quite early with the book, possibly Christmas evening, in fact. And 
more than anything else, I I wasn't into quizzes in a facts in a competitive way. Just read it. I didn't try and actively learn all the facts. But a friend of mine, as a neurologist, put a thing on Twitter the other day about why it is that our memories from our formative years are so much more precise and well-remembered. And it's not the formative years, it's the puberty years, the hormonal changes that take place in puberty. They stretch to your brain, and the emotional changes that you have mean you're attaching more... You don't know you're doing it at the time, but you're attaching more import and significance to the things you learn then, and you're taking your memories of them much sharper. And so when you give me a book that says 1982... I can tell you straight away that 1982 was the second year of Ronald Reagan's presidency. I can tell you that uh, towards the end of the year they were making plans to, to bring TV AM and BBC Breakfast Time uh, on, into the uh, TV screens in January 83. I can tell you that the film for 1982 that won the Academy Award for the best picture was Gandhi. I can tell you that uh, in the FA Cup final of 1982, Tottenham Hotspur beat Queen's Park Rangers in a replay. There are things I can just roll off about. It was the year after Bucks Fizz won the Eurovision Song Contest. The Eurovision Song Contest was held in Harrogate, and it was won by Nicole of Germany, who was the last winning entry to have a number one hit record with her winning entry with a little piece. I can roll off things associated with 1982 just like that, but they've never left my brain. Yeah, but you can do that with any year. I'm not straining for the facts. But your brain works like that, obviously. Christmas number one was Rene and Renato, Save Your Love. (laughs) But the fact that we that we take in our formative years, we take in much at a much longer term. I've not tried to memorise any of those facts. Those things that I just came up with you are just oh, this is what I remember when between the ages of eleven and twelve. I'm and scrolling back to my my eleven and twelve, which is obviously before that. Bit of a blur, to be honest. I do think it's the way your brain works. However, I do think. Your friend is onto something about emotional memory. Dean Burnett is his name. I remember his name now. <laughs> Good. He's a writer in All credit. New, New but York. I think there is something about emotional memory, isn't there? The, the emotional memories you begin to form at puberty are probably really sharp because it's the first time you realise properly that it's just you in yes, the world. Yes, very, very much so. My world was facts. They made me happy. And I think part of that was growing up knowing that I was gay when I was more introvert and not as confident with the other kids. And so it was sometimes it was the, the, the love of facts was something of a retreat because I was just a little bit shy compared to how I am now. Very different, very different era. But I was always a quiet, bookish kid as it was. Did you read novels? Uh, only the ones I was forced to. I had a very childish taste in novels. I was into things like Enid Blyton long after I was meant to be into Enid, long after I was meant to be into Enid Blyton. The only time I can ever remember reading novels as a kid for fun, as opposed to because my teacher had told me you have to read that novel, was around about this age, really. That's kind of when it came to an end. I remember a brief period of being into the novels of Alan Garner. Oh, yes. Uh, Weird Stone of Brisingerman and The Owl Service. And Total I don't remember anything about those books. books. I just remember I, I read them. But, you know, that's probably key to why you love facts so much, because they don't change. They are reassuringly the same. You don't have to put any emotional interpretation on them. You don't have to regard them as you might do Enid Blyton, and I don't think you need to apologise for any age you read Enid Blyton or any other book come to that. But somehow with those books, they are supposed to be childish. But these facts from 82 still stand. They are reassuringly (laughs) set. Well, they stood then, and they are accurate for the time. When you were reading it then, did you know that you were 
learning these facts? Or did you find that you had to sort of train your brain over the years to remember things? In other words, does your memory work as a kind of sponge or are you somebody who records photographically? Um, A bit of one, bit of the other. Um, Facts can be very quickly forgotten and you you just don't realise until you need that fact. And I think everybody knows this now, that this happens the older that you get. The older you get, you can hold on to these facts about 1982, but but uh, you don't remember any facts from 2021. Um, and that's just one of those things that happens. I was doing an online quiz yesterday where they asked, I mean, I was a very, I was a sort of chess prodigy when I was a kid. I was always been into, I was into chess. There were two questions. Who was the Russian grandmaster that lost the last World Championship final? And I knew that. And who was the Russian grandmaster who lost the previous one? And I'd just totally forgotten. And he was, I knew it at the time and I followed the game. You know, I, I kept along and, and followed it, but the name was gone. And that's sadly what happens to all of us, is that we have to work harder. So taking quizzing seriously means taking quizzing seriously. You revise, you try and work out ways of remembering, you try and fill the gaps of especially things that you once knew that you didn't know. Because I do a job on the chase. I get paid for my general knowledge. I don't take the job lightly. Like any pastime, to get better at it, it involves work. Because I have got nowhere near a photographic memory. I'm good with mnemonics, but I'm not very good with just seeing a fact and it, it just staying in there. Just to take you back then to 11-year-old Paul opening your Guinness Book of Records, did you take it to your room? Did you have to share a bedroom? Where was it oh, in no, the house? Oh, no, I was in a comfortable non, non-sharing, uh, much to the uh, gratitude of my sister, I think, because if she was trying to get to sleep and I was saying, did you know that the biggest shrub in Australia, um, I don't think she would have ever forgiven me. So, no, we had, our, we had our own bedrooms and I was free to be bookish to my heart's content. Did you read the book as I did with this copy, which is opening it at page one and working my way through effectively? So I started with pretty much the human body, et cetera, et cetera, and human achievement, skipping a little over some of the sporting achievements, if I'm honest, but becoming fascinated by bridges and tall buildings somewhere along the way. Is that how you did it, or did you have a section that you went to? I think everyone has a bias. You skip over the sport, I would very much go to the sport. And similarly, I'd miss other things that were a lesser interest. But the one thing that everybody who reads the book takes away from it is that Robert Pershing Wadler was the tallest human being who ever lived. He's the king of the book. No one who's read the book fails to take away the name of the tallest man who ever lived. And it's so otherworldly that somebody could reach 8 feet 11 and I think that's why it's always at the beginning of the book. It's a little, I mean, I don't, I've never read the book now. It seems a bit garish and a bit different in tone to what it used to be. That's um, so interesting you say that because the, the tone of it really struck me. Now, the, the only people credited with uh, putting these down in, uh, as editors are the McWhirter twins. Yes. There are obviously loads of people standing with stopwatches or tape measures or whatever. Yeah. But they are the only people who, who credit themselves with editorial content. Yes. Can it be true? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here. And the tone of it was obviously set by them. And I wondered if that's changed over the years. Because, for example, I'm looking now at, um, <laughs> these are always the fascinating ones, the, the shortest mature human. Right At the end of that, after all her vital statistics, it says her mature weight varied from 3.4 to 4 kilograms to uh, 4.7, which suggests she was overweight. <laughs> 
Which is a really odd little thing to put in at the end of that, isn't it? Because actually, Wirt was a famously judgmental man. Well, exactly. So, do you think that that tone was part of the joy of it? Because there's no doubt that having seen this edition, I think for the first time in my entire life, what I came to know, apart from you know the most takes ever recorded for somebody, Pat Mm. Coombs, by the way, um, was also that the the voice of the compilers is so present, which I wasn't really expecting. Well, by the time I started reading the book, Ross McWhorter had, had, had been assassinated, so I don't have any in on Ross McWhorter at all. Yes, I mean, the McWhorter twins, Norris didn't outlive his brother by very long anyway, but his brother was assassinated by the IRA. And I remember the, the fact that it was on his doorstep as being a, a really salient and sad fact. Yeah, very much so, but it was before my times. So I don't remember the shot. I more remember the shock of finding that fact out. I don't have no recollection of uh, it happening at the time. Uh, because you see people on telly and you don't realise they've got this amazing backstory as well. For me, the book is Norris McWhorter's magnum opus. It's that erudite and slightly scary man who used to sit in the middle of record breakers and kids would ask him anything. And I have no idea how prepared he was or how prepared the kids were. We don't. We just don't know. But just to watch him reel off the facts one after the other was just a remarkable thing. But he was very terrifyingly erudite. He never cracked a smile. He he was just this machine. It was like sort of how you'd imagine the worst nightmare of a Latin teacher, I suppose, is uh, just this relentless, this is the fact. This is what you've got to know. I'm not going to make it any more interesting than that. Just this is the fact. And a slight sense that you might be tested on it later, I yes, exactly, felt as well. Yeah. It started, Record Breaker started as a spin-off from Blue Peter, actually. Oh, um, did it? Yeah, yeah, because they used to, I mean, in, even in my day, we'd get people standing on top of each other or whatever, you know, to achieve highest or fastest. And then once a year, we would do something called All-Star Record Breakers, which was produced by a guy called Alan Russell, who ended up editing the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> so obviously, once you're in that world, you can't escape from it. And that was where we'd all get together and do a kind of Christmas special, which again, Well, the, the cast of the show was genius, really, because you just had this... It, it almost kind of reminds me, I suppose, of Bradley Walsh on The Chase, in that you had this front face, and he was always smiling and cheering and light-hearted Roy Castle, but underneath it all, you could see there was an intense love of what he was what he was presenting. And in that sense, it reminds me of Bradley Walsh on The Chase, that he plays up to being the dense one on the team, but he's absolutely not. He, he loves the fact that facts are being presented, and if we come up with an extra fact, then he's really, really happy. And it's a really good combination of him and Norris McWhorter. Good cop, bad cop, if you like. The all-smiling, all 76 musical instruments at one time playing showman. And then just Norris. You're right, though. It was slightly serious. And a slight suggestion, because obviously I was watching it when I was a little bit older, that the child in question, first of all, ought to remember that fact forever, but mm-hmm. slightly should have known it. Yeah, there was, there was an element to that. He terrified me. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Did you want to be in it? Did you want to set a record when you were little? I suppose the, the one that I really wanted to give it a go, because you don't realise the limitations of your young body, was the eat, the speed-eating ones. There was always a section on speed-eating. And because that's just not something you do normally, you did always wonder, how many scampi could I fit in if I really gave it a go? And Because I really like scampi. There's a guy in this book called Peter Dowdswell, and he held, at the time this book was published... Something like seven or eight different eating records. And I just kind of wanted to be him. I didn't realise that actually you have to have freakish anatomy to even begin to take this task on. Wolfing down 25 scotch eggs in a minute or whatever it was. So I always liked my food. Um, so that, in that sense, yes. And how would you train for that? Away, away from the gaze of your parents? I, mean, I, never actually put it into, I never put any of these plans into motion. <laughs> I don't think my parents would have approved, to be honest with you, but... Um, that, yeah, that was the one where I thought I could give it a go. Or just to make up one, because I'm sure, I haven't double-checked, but I'm sure there isn't a most number of vegetable samosas eaten in two minutes. So just by setting the record, you've, you, this would be the first person to do it, you've set the record. So. Um, obviously, the, the, again, the tone is we do acknowledge that these records are set, but please be careful. You know, it's, yeah. it's a slightly... It's not, it's not even... Um, uh, fatherly tone, is it? it? Definitely, you're right. It's definitely a teacher that you're a little scared of, whose subject you hope to drop later. What about turning to random bits of it? Did you find that there were bits where you suddenly thought, I did not know that, I didn't even know the world was capable of this? Or did you have a kind of idea of the, this is a ridiculous analogy, but the roundness of the world? Were you, were you secure no. of your, in your place in it? Well, good Lord, no. Who, if you are at the 11, you've had a very privileged upbringing as far as I'm concerned. Jacob Rees-Mogg probably was, but uh, no, I had no idea. I mean, I, I was fortunate to have a heritage that wasn't from Britain. So the dual heritage meant that I was perhaps a bit more outwardly worldly than other kids of my age. I don't know. I mean, I, but I can't be the only one with that. But certainly the one of the reasons my mum and dad loved the Guinness Book of Records is because there was an Indian in the Guinness Book of Records. I, I'm not talking about longest nails or longest hair or any of the weird ones but a singer who sadly died last year called Lata Mangeshka, who for years had recorded more records, uh, musical records, that is, than uh, anyone else in history. I've never really asked Mum and Dad about this, but they always seem to know who was in the Guinness Book of Records. So I think it might have been quite a big thing in India. I think the Guinness Book of Records might have been culturally quite a big thing in India. Well, it's always been the apogee of attainment, hasn't it? It's always been, even if it was a slightly jocular reference, there's always something yeah. about the fact that, you know, if it's in this book... It absolutely exists and has its place. Absolutely. And incontrovertibly for 82, all these are the records. Which is interesting for a book sponsored by a brewery. Yes. I was looking at random, just picking out random pages, and there was always something that you look at and you just go, who needs to know that? <laughs> well, there are, there are some. I wonder whether they still have, in the current edition, um, Britain's heaviest MP, which seems very specific to 82. They're a lot fitter than they used to be now. I think, I think <laughs> Whoever holds the record. Do they tell the truth about their weight? Well, this is true. But I love the story of how it came about. The the boss of Guinness was shooting um, wildlife birds, in fact, and somebody said, oh, you know, you should have got that one because that's the slowest bird. And he then thought, there's no way of measuring this. 
then sought to find out which was the fastest bird, although even that's disputed. At the time of this book, it's the plover, plover, but oh, it may not. Later, people have said it could be that, but at the time he found out, it was the plover. But um, then set Chris Chataway, a university friend, the task of finding out whether they could assemble all these. And Chris Chataway helpfully knew them at Werther Twins. He'd been at university with them. And they were already organising a fact agency for people who needed these sort of things verifying. So talk about a perfect elision of people. Well, yeah, in fact, Norris McWhorter timed Roger Bannister's four-minute mile that Chris Chataway was the pacemaker for. Yeah. One of the two pacemakers for. So they're all very well connected. Do you think, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, and I, I, I would like to be challenged on this, but so far... This is a very male enterprise. Do you, do you think there's something yes. in the recording of this that is particularly suited to that side of your brain? It's a very, very, very difficult question because <laughs> nobody wants to put women off being in quiz or women being fact-hungry. Um, it's, so it's a, it's a very difficult question. But in my experiences in quiz, I find that the brilliant female players, they tend to be intuitively bright as opposed to practised bright, by which I mean they know things because... They're more interested in the than just for the sake of knowing it. So, say an athletics world record, a male quiz is far more likely to know what the exact time was than a female quiz who's just as likely to know what the name of that athlete is or where they're from. But they won't necessarily know what a fact that doesn't have any real interest to anyone. The exact time. I know lots of brilliant female quizzes, and they're all incredibly erudite. Whereas I consider myself a learnt quizzer, by which I mean I, I don't just learn facts because they're interesting, I learn facts because they'll score me a point in a quiz. So the joy for you, and I get this when I listen to your radio programmes, what I get is that you alight on a fact, like um, a happy bird on its prey. You know, you're just, you see it, you swoop, you are thrilled, and it's a joy to watch in exactly the same way as it is when you watch a bird hovering and then you think that mouse has had it. There's there's something amazingly clear about the way you retrieve a fact, which is well, It does take quite lovely. a long time uh, to write an episode of, of any of the shows I've done. <laughs> there's a lot of fairly slavish research that goes into it so that we can work out in what order to start revealing the facts. And one of my favourite facts, I can't remember it in its entirety, but the man who invented the torpedo is the reason that the song The Sound of Music happened, because the man who invented the torpedo became a celebrity, and as a result, his daughters became celebrities and started launching ships. And through that, one of them met Captain Von Trapp. And the original Mrs Von Trapp was the either the daughter or the granddaughter of the man who invented the torpedo. That is that, that's worth sort of the weird, price of any admission. That's extraordinary. Well, that is extraordinary. I, I like the way the facts connect. And, of course, that's not what the Guinness Book of Records does. Because the Guinness Book of Records is facts in isolation. Uh, the Guinness Book of Records didn't direct how I saw facts. It made me love facts. That's what, that's what it, it didn't direct me to how I saw them. It made me uh, get hungry for picking up more and more facts. And looking at that book as I was this morning on the way in, there's lots of stuff there that's really, really interesting without necessarily you needing to know whether it's a record or not. As you say, the bridges and buildings, and it doesn't really matter what the tallest building in the world is. It doesn't change anyone's life. But at least knowing it exists and where it is and why you might want to go and see it, you might not know necessarily if you... Uh, I mean, do you know where the longest suspension bridge in the world is? No, Paul. Well, it's in Turkey. It was opened this year by... Erdogan and and new records are always quite exciting. 
You might not have heard of it unless you picked up a copy of the Guinness Book of no. Records and they told you... But you're well, right, I want to see it now. I want to yeah. see an image of it. And of course, what Guinness Book of Records now has is it's fighting against the internet. Information is now more readily available on the internet. And if you want to know what the longest what suspension bridges in the world, you can find out within two seconds of getting on your phone. And that's a shame, really. But at least Guinness Book of Records gives you the categories of things that you might want to know. me feel reading this edition sort of nostalgic for all that effort you know that it mattered so much at the time all those sporting achievements and the tallest building of course has been superseded many times over and they're probably building it now in Shanghai or somewhere to top everything but at the time this book encapsulates absolutely the highest lowest fattest biggest strongest longest and of absolutely everything which well, we'll matters intensely there is a list of british angling records by fish so you heaviest trout the heaviest salmon the heaviest char the heaviest chub by each fish there's a list of what's the weight of the heaviest fish found in british waters and i think that's a level of obsession that's just absolutely admirable it is and it's human it's really human and i think that's what 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 the internet doesn't have yes you have the fact that your fingertips but you don't have this thought through aspect of somebody measuring it and standing there and it probably is the imprint of of the of norris at this time and the McWhorter twins initially that they said okay clear the decks these things mattered for that moment they really mattered and that's why it's all in this book, and that's why it continues to be a massive seller. And there are presumably some records, like Paul McCartney in this book was the most successful ex-Beatle. He, he, he probably still is, isn't he? I imagine very much so that he still is. And I don't think poor old Robert Pershing Wadlow will ever get beaten either. <laughs> I, I, I think that he had a pituitary tumour, and I think that the treatment of pituitary tumours will be so much quicker and so much more skilled now that I don't think anyone would ever be allowed to get to 8, eight metres 11 um, That's a lonely eight feet place. 11 even. It's eight a lonely seven. place to be, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a wonderful Hilary Mantel book called The Giant O'Brien, which is based on the then tallest man in the world. He was Irish, who did have a growth mm. disorder and was in continual. Was literally reading about him on the way. Really? In. Yes. Because he had he was in pain all the time. Yes. And and that again is something that is left out of this fact based. Well, there's book. a lot of sadness behind a lot of records. I mean, I'm a big fan of athletics, and I was looking at the world records that were standing at the time. Uh, and so many of them were done by people that we now know were part of a fairly intensive national doping <laughs> doping regime. That uh, and, that's, and a lot of them are still standing as a result. But yeah, not, in some records need to be taken with a degree of a pinch of salt. If you don't mind, I'd like to just do a little exercise where I just give you five facts, and I'm simply going to give you the facts simply by picking a random page in the book. The tallest flagstaff in Great Britain is a 225-foot Douglas fir staff at Kew Gardens, Richmond-upon-Thames. I've seen that. Oh, you've seen it? Oh, so you knew I didn't realise I was preaching to convert it. No, no, I didn't know it was the tallest or anything, but I have been to Kew Gardens and I have seen it. Two brothers, Sven and Pear, and a sister, Carrie Heistad of Lebanon, New Hampshire, have never slept indoors since March 1974. <laughs> They've chosen to. They're not homeless. Your laughter is fine. Um... The coldest they've experienced is Christmas morning 1980 with a wind chill temperature of minus 67. Also, remarkably, the family have no television. 
I don't think that's remarkable. I think if you've chosen that lifestyle, it's not surprising. But that's that's that little tone again, isn't it? Yeah. That's just that voice that steps in and says, Ahem, just to inform you as well, they also have no television. The highest ever figure for the British minimum lending rate was 17% from 1979 to 1980. I mean, how did the... Uh, it's extraordinary the absolute completeness of the, of it all. It is, and it's always interesting to somebody. Yes, of course. There's, yeah. there's no Apart such from thing. Apart the fishing as a... weights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm actually fact fans as old as the Guinness Book of Records because it started in 1955. So Ooh, uh, I know, and I was nearly yeah, in it. Yeah, you once. are now having no compact. Oh, I know. No, no I was nearly in it once because for about a week I held the British civilians brackets female freefall record. Wow. And then some girl went up higher, just like that, just straight after me. So That's it was a gutting. brief moment. But I have to say, it's not why I did it. No, 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 of course not. I did it because the camera was pointing at me, <laughs> which is the only reason I ever did anything like that. Um, I'm going to take you away then from, from all of this, because obviously you had a massive interest in it as a child. You could remember things easily. You were absolutely um, in love with all these facts. But initially, that wasn't the career you chose. You went into medicine. Are, are there any crossovers with that? Or was it just a way of using what you already loved? Or was it somebody else's Oh, you could discuss choice? this for a long time. So it's so complicated. I came from a family of medics. My granddad was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. My mum was a nurse. And it was just understood that I would be a doctor. And being quite academically driven and with love of facts, everyone kind of just assumed that I'd be good at it. And nobody really picked up the fact that I found science difficult. So I was never really a scientist. And the reason I wasn't a scientist, and all those IQ tests that you do, that test the various parts of your brain, I was never good at three-dimensional visualisation or mapping. And, and there's the word, visuospatial IQ was something that I just didn't have. Essentially, I was never a scientist. I think people assume, from me being a doctor and me going into quizzing, that I've always been good at all academic pursuits. I haven't. Uh, I've been good at what I've been good at. And medicine wasn't one of them, sadly. And you discovered a love of performing when you were a doctor. And again, there's, there's, there's a few people who do that, aren't there? There must be something quite performative about putting on a white coat. That makes I you... think, that according to the Guinness <laughs> Book of World Records, the one that made the most money was probably Harry Hill. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting thing because the question comes up a lot. And I think the question is rooted in the class system in this country, how fascinated we are by class, because people don't understand why anyone would give up a secure career for an insecure career. Uh, far more teachers and far more unemployed people have become stand-up comedians than doctors, but nobody ever asks. People know, for instance, that Ramesh Ranganathan was a maths teacher, but even then the word maths indicates that he was not. He was no fly-by-night. The, the maths is used as an an instant, a proper teacher. No, 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 no. And you're right, you're, you're isolating things which have a vocational element. Exactly. And actually, there's been about 10 doctors who've gone into stand-up comedy, or into comedy, if you mm. love it, Jonathan Miller, Graham Chapman, Graham Garden, and both Graham Chapman and Graham Garden never practised. They finished university and they went straight into comedy. So there's probably fewer than you think. And then there are more interesting ones like Simon Brodkin, who plays Lee Nelson, who was a doctor, but hardly ever mentions it. Was, he was only in it for about two or three years, and it doesn't really affect any of his comedy. I think the one connection is the medical school review. Uh, there are three doctors from my medical school who became stand-up comedians, myself, Harry Hill, and Mike Wozniak. And all three have in common, as we contributed heavily, whether writing or performing, 
so the medical school review. So we had we had a love of comedy to start off with. How did it go down with your family? All right. Yeah. I mean, the chase changed everything because once I was on telly, they had to have bragging rights with their friends, which is <laughs> perhaps the most important part of being a Bengali parent is the bragging rights. The fact that I have Parkinson's disease now, which means that medicine is not a practical career for me, has softened the blow, I think. Because if I didn't have comedy and quizzing, uh, my Parkinson's would have rendered me unemployable. So it's all kind of worked out in the end. So, yeah, they're proud. My dad was always a closet comedian anyway. And I realised that I've, I've got lucky. Not everyone gets to do comedy and quizzing as, as, as twin careers. Uh, and I realised that I've got very lucky and I'm very grateful for that, for sure. How do you think today's children react to the Guinness Book of Records? Do you think it has the same joy for them as I it did for I, us? I have to be very much brought up in a certain way for there to be that much joy. I recently bought an old copy of Encyclopedia Britannica because I wanted to have an Encyclopedia Britannica. And the first response for most people I know is, why? <laughs> you can get all the information. And it's just I just wanted to have an Encyclopedia Britannica. It's like that with the Guinness Book of Records. But, the, you know, you can't really deny that when it comes to gaining information, the internet is an incredible thing. I mean, I it, over there by the wall on charge is a machine that has the whole universe on it. If I had one of those when I was at school, I would never have got any work done. When my parents used to go shopping, they'd just stick me in a bookshop and they'd go and do their shopping and they'd come back and pick me up in a bookshop a few hours later and I'd be sat reading chess books and cricket school books and this, that and the other. If that was all on my phone, when would I ever get work done? I, I, I can't believe that anyone does, to be honest with you. But there's something about having it all together, because I, I can read the dictionary for hours. I absolutely love it. And it's not necessarily... Poorly plotted, though, isn't it? <laughs> But I, there's something about the fact that I I'd probably go to it to find a word, but I get sidetracked. And that's the joy of the Guinness Book oh, of Records um, is that, you know, um, you might think I want to find out this, but, uh, you know, endlessly we're now talking about Douglas fir trees or whatever it was that the brothers did who slept outside forever. You know, the, there is something about the fact that it's in one place, but it's really scattered. You know, it's it's not confined to just the well, fact that Well, I'm very grateful to, to the gift that you gave me of the 1982 book, because it's a big year in my life as emotional development. And... It's really interesting reading about where the world was, not just in more serious terms, but in terms of, because I've always been a fan of sports statistics, what the world records and national records were at that time and how much they've changed. I found it endlessly fascinating, and that was just through a quick skim. So I'm really looking forward to getting properly stuck in. Do you have a favourite one, favourite record? Yes. Uh, It's in there, and it was broken in 1991. And that was uh, Bob Beeman's world long jump record in Mexico City in 1968, where he, he smashed the world long jump record because of altitude and never did anything particularly before or since, just, just set this iconic world record. And it's, it's a personal reason, which is and one that I only realised when trying to write an Edinburgh show this year, is it changed my life. Because in 1983, I went for an interview for a scholarship, a half-fee scholarship to Dulwich College, the school I ended up at. And they sat and they chatted to me and they said to me, what, what, what are you interested in? And I said, um, sports general knowledge. And they said, can you tell me who holds the world record for the men's long jump? And 15 minutes later, I stopped talking. <laughs> and I'd, I'd completely forgotten that my love of general knowledge was part of the reason that I'd halved my school fees to go to Dulwich College. So 
it actually genuinely changed mine and my family's life, this love of general knowledge. I've never won any money on a quiz show, but I've saved them a lot, an awful lot of money by halving my school fees for five years. So that's my, that's my, and it's in there. Every time I see it, a smile comes on my face going, yep, I know that one. I think that's absolutely fantastic, as is the book, as has been talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm I'm amazed we've never met yet, but uh, thank you very much, yes. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton, and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.